we're going to be reading from First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure, for pure, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and, pre- chosen and precious, you yourselves, like, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, and a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were, as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thus says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before I get started today, I just want to say a couple of quick things. Um, first of all, I want to give public and deep thanks to Pastor David for stepping in in a pinch uh, last week. I, I don't know who had the greater pinch, me or him, if you heard his message, but uh, he, he stepped up and just uh, knocked it out of the park. It was a great, great message, um, especially given the time frame that he had to prepare for it. Um, and so, as always I am when uh, he preaches, I'm just amazed at the gift to speak and to communicate uh, God's truth that he's put on David, and, and um, it's always a blessing to get to hear that. Love him and Katie. Katie uh, serves this church in ways. Yesterday, just so you guys don't know, that they are the, uh, the college and career pastors here at um, Northridge Life, and yesterday they put in a full day of college ministry tramping around Palo Duro State Park with uh, with a bunch of college students. So anyway, and I think the ones that went had a lot of fun. Amen, college students that went. So um, the no amens on that? Come on, guys. Help me out here. Um, I don't know what y'all did. Did you push one of them down a mountain or something? Also, uh, real quickly, I ask you sometimes that if you, and I, I want to make this statement obviously given for today, if you ever have uh, questions about something that happens in the service or something I say in the sermon, then we invite you to ask those questions. We, we're not a, you know, just take our word for it. And, and uh, if you have a question, we want to have the opportunity to explain that. And so a few weeks ago, I did that in a message on church discipline. And with the holidays and then myself being sick out last week, I never got to address the question that was asked. It was about the nature of the church's authority and what the limits and the, and the boundaries of the church's authority are in exercising church discipline. It was a great question. And so what I'm going to do, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to delay it any further, but I am going to do it like this. To not take up time out of this message, I'm going to be answering that question this week 
on Facebook Live at Northridge Life Church's Facebook page. So if you'll go there, you'll find my video answer to that question. And um, I would answer you directly, but it was an anonymous question, so I don't know how to do that. Um, but uh, if you, if you uh, will be looking for that, I will answer that question for you on Facebook Live. The video will be posted, and um, you can, you can uh, look at that when it comes out probably sometime midweek. All right, so let's get to the message. Um, our passage today from First Peter, I love the book of First Peter. I have found myself repeatedly, both in messages and just in personal Bible study, going back to it over and over over the last year. This has just been a year where the things that First Peter says has, have really been meaningful for me. Essentially, the book of First Peter is a book about how Christians um, are to have a, a gospel-centered, big-picture perspective on the suffering that they are inevitably going to face. Pastor David told a great story of personal suffering last week, and and we're all going to face those things. If If you haven't yet, then you are due for a big reality check soon, because we all face different levels of suffering. Um, but when we look at First Peter, because suffering is so central to the theme of the book, it may surprise you, it may seem odd that the book also spends a lot of time talking about my subject today, which is worship. It would seem like those things are contradictory. You either suffer or you worship. But what Peter seems to be saying throughout the book is that worship should, should uh, inspire, or I'm sorry, suffering should inspire worship, and, the wor- and our worship should oftentimes be the result of our suffering. Interesting, isn't it? In chapter 1 of the book, just for a few examples, he speaks of how the tested genuineness of our faith. Well, how does the genuineness of your faith get tested? Through suffering. He says that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. It's worship. And how that believing in him, we rejoice with inexpressible joy and and that we're filled with glory that's talking about exuberant praise that results from our suffering and our belief in chapter three he says in your hearts honor christ as the lord honor christ the lord as holy and so he's saying that this is practical worship this is like like in our in our thoughts our desires as i spoke of earlier that we are always to look at christ as the, the the epicenter of holiness he builds on this theme of suffering and praise even further in chapter 4, and he reminds us to, re, re, now listen, this sounds really contradictory, to rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. So it says as you're associating with Christ through suffering, the, the, the response to that for a believer should be rejoicing. How many of you are as good at that as I am? Uh, that bad, huh? Because I'm not real good at it at all. I'm not real good at it at all. But it's a great encouragement to me to read these passages in First Peter to know that even in the middle of suffering, the call of God on my life is to rejoice. But we have, difficult, we have difficulty understanding this connection of worship and suffering uh, we have, and, and Peter's exhortation um, for one simple reason. We're living in a time where more than ever the church, by and large, struggles to define worship. They have a real hard time saying, this is what worship looks like. 
It's been really difficult. So what happens is we most of us understand worship. When, I, when I'm talking to you or you're talking to me about worship, we, our mind immediately goes to a musical context. That we're talking about things that happen uh, in the terms of the musical worship or even church music. But this thinking is way, way off. Now listen, just like this morning, I am so grateful for music that helps me to devotionally meditate on God. But so much more than notes and melodies should inspire worship in me. So much more. I believe that beauty should inspire worship in me. When I stand before the Grand Canyon or when I see a a, a field of wildflowers in bloom or a deer bounding across a meadow, that, that sense of beauty should inspire worship in me. Knowledge and wisdom from the Word of God, when I learn something new from the Scriptures, that should inspire worship in me. The love of my friends and my family and and the constancy of that should inspire worship in me. The simple provision of food and shelter, of daily bread, should inspire worship in me. But more than anything, more than anything, no matter what degree of suffering you're under, Every reminder of the grace of God that has been given to me in Christ Jesus, in prayer, in the scriptures, in preaching, in blessing, in suffering, every one of those should prompt a response of praise in my grateful heart. If I always have to be warmed up, if I have to be gotten in the mood, if I have to have a fully working technology, if everything has to be just in order, and there has to be skillfully played or sung songs in order for me to, to work it up, to lavish praise on the one who saved me, then listen to me carefully. If that is the case, then worship for us has been reduced to a bunch of pagans conjuring up their God. Because worship is so much more than that. We don't have to get the incense flowing in the temple to get uh, the heart of worship moving in the direction of God. The point is that worship is not just one activity among many for Christians. It's the totality of the Christian's life. It's everything to us. It's all we do. David Peterson wrote an incredible book, and he said that worship is a comprehensive category describing the Christian's total existence. We don't get our worship on like the song says. We don't, we, that's not what we do. We live to worship. It's the air we breathe. We don't put it on and take it off. Rather, we constantly return to worship. We immerse ourselves in it. The true Christian is as much defined by his existence in worship as a fish is his existence in water. That's what it means to be a Christian is to be a worshiper. More than that. It's God himself. It's not any person. We don't get to say, well, this makes me want to worship, and this does, and I like this kind of music, and not that kind of music. I like this kind of preaching, and not that kind of preaching. We don't get to do that. You know why? Because God himself, not any person, defines the nature of acceptable worship. Peterson further states, the worship of the living and true God is essentially, get this, an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes in the way that he alone makes possible. God tells us how it works, and he makes the way possible for us to worship. With all of that in mind, let's take a look at what First Peter 2, the passage we just read, tells us about the nature of God-pleasing, gospel-saturated worship. <coughs> the, the, the connection 
to worship. And the first thing that Peter says at the very beginning of that passage may not be that obvious. This is what he says. So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Did you notice something about that particular list of sins? There's plenty of lists of sins in different teachings in the Bible. There's one in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians chapter 5, just to name a couple. But this one he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Did you know something about those? Those sins in particular are all against someone else. Think about that. They're all against others in some way. I can, be, I can only be rather malicious or deceitful to you. I, I can only put up a hypocritical front to you. I can only envy what you have. I can only slander someone else. All these are rooted in selfishness. I'm more important than you. You're more important than me. It's selfishness in one way or another. So the first step of true worship is to think corporately. Not that it's just me and Jesus I'm getting my worship on, but that we are the corporate body of the redeemed and we are gathering together in worship of the living God. So think corporately, this is not to imply that you can't or shouldn't ever worship in solitude. Of course I'm not doing saying that. I, I do it. But, but that your life as a worshiper is never complete until it's intertwined with other worshiping lives. If you spend the rest of your life alone in some you know, monastery somewhere worshiping all by yourself, you have not found out what worship is. Until you've plugged in to the other body, the other members of the body in unity worshiping your king. Again, this is not just about going to church, but it's about life. It's not about singing and listening to preaching. It's about a life of breaking bread and fellowship and prayers and mutual teaching that's mentioned in Acts 2.42. This is why membership, we've been talking so much about membership. This is why membership in a local body is so important. And why internet and TV and virtual reality churches can never replace the physical gathering of the saints. I need to look you in the eyes and you need to look me in the eyes. I need to see you at your best and I need to see you at your worst and vice versa. That's what God intended. Moving on, Peter says, Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now some versions say the the pure milk of the word, since that's what's implied in the Greek. This tells us a number of things. First, when Peter commands us to be like newborn infants, he's reminding us that worship demands, if you're truly worshiping, it demands that we embrace innocence and dependence. Not independence, innocence and dependence. We're not posturing. We're not grasping for power. We're not trying to manipulate God On the contrary, what we're doing is we're trustingly clinging to God and God alone as the very source of our existence. Second, we see that all meaningful worship, if your worship matters, let me put it like that, it's going to be rooted in Scripture. Wake your neighbor up. If if your worship matters, it's going to be rooted in Scripture. It's going to be saturated with Scripture going to be based on scripture not your fleeting feelings or your assumptions about god worship that is not theologically sound or that is flat out non-biblically cannot benefit you spiritually no matter how it makes you 
feel. It may assist you therapeutically, but it will only do so superficially. It will never matter if it doesn't have the sharp edges of the word of God intertwined with it. Thirdly, we see that by desiring that word, we grow. Peter says, desire the milk of the word that you may grow by it. You guys remember what Jesus told the devil himself. He quoted Deuteronomy to him when the, the, he was tempted in the wilderness and the devil said, hey, take those stones, you're hungry, and make them, turn them into bread. Jesus it says, it is written in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, I'm not going to get filled up by turning rocks to bread, devil. I'm going to get fully sustained. I'm going to be nourished. I'm going to be nourished by feasting on the word of God. Think about your babies. A baby doesn't grow by trying to grow. It doesn't emerge from the womb and go, ah, I got to put on some weight. I got to get some, some inches here. I got to grow. It doesn't do that. It doesn't worry about growth. It doesn't toss and turn at night and ten. Oh my gosh, I'm seven pounds, six ounces. Good night. I'm never going to get anywhere in life like this. A baby doesn't worry about growth. A baby grows simply by eating what its mother provides. You don't grow. You don't grow by worrying about your growth. You don't grow by trying to grow. You grow by feasting on what the Lord has provided. We should spend less time worrying about how to grow more spiritual and more time just devouring the word of God that we may live. Peter adds a condition to the growth promised as we worshipfully consume the word of God. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's he saying there? He's, everything Peter is saying applies only to those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus, those who have never initially tasted the goodness of the Lord in his saving grace can never truly worship and never grow by his word. It does not matter what they say and it does not matter what they sing. If they have not initially tasted the goodness of the Lord Jesus, there is no worship and there is no growth. I remember when I was a kid, this is frequent, you guys probably remember this, that country music stars in particular, would take a break from all their drinking and cheating and carousing songs to put out albums of gospel favorites. It was like, you know, Johnny Paycheck, Mr. Take This Job and Shove It sings Amazing Grace. You know, things like that. You'd see that all the time. As though they could just switch gears and be pleasing to the Lord. This is what Isaiah says about this. This is Isaiah 1-7. He says, God is talking to his own people, and he says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings, of rams, of fat, of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. See, acceptable worship only comes from lives and lips that have tasted the goodness of the Lord. Those that have lost their appetite for anything else. True worship never comes from right actions alone, but from hearts reborn in the love of God. Peter goes on, as you come to him, a living stone, that's talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in these two verses, as well as in the next, Peter cites a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of the coming Jesus before he came the first time from Isaiah 28:16, And we see from it that worship, get this carefully, is always countercultural. No one in the world is ever going to applaud you from, for being a true biblical gospel-centered worshiper. No one. It's always countercultural. You're always swimming against the stream. See, because it involves approaching Christ, the living stone, who Peter, quoting Isaiah here, says that he's the one, the living stone has been rejected by men, rejected by humanity. And this puts believers in a position of great wisdom and favor because by the grace of God, we've looked to Jesus, whom God himself, disregarding the opinions of the human race, God himself has looked at Jesus and he said, chosen, precious. And we too are coming to this Jesus. In doing this, we become living stones like Jesus himself and are built up together. There's that corporate thought again. I'm not built up alone. I'm built up with you. You're built up with me. We need each other. We're built up together, Peter says, into a house of praise for our king. And this leads us to the great purpose of our salvation in general and of worship in particular. And and that is to be a holy priesthood. That's what God saved you to do. He didn't save you just so you could avoid hell. He saved you so that you could be a holy priesthood. You're not offering blood and pleading for mercy like the priests of the Old Testament did, but you're, you're, you're offering sacrifices of praise that are acceptable to God only because of Jesus Christ. That's good news. Next, we see the epicenter of this teaching on worship. This is the whole point of everything I want to say to you today. For it stands in Scripture, Peter says, Behold, I am laying in Zion. This is that Scripture from Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter exposes attention on one side, pulling on the other. In these verses, it's attention between the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's a tension between whoever believes in him and those who do not believe. It's between those who have honor and those who are to be put to shame. By God's sovereign decree, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of everything God is building. Jesus is it. Jesus is the point of everything. Everything is central to him. And God will never do anything outside of Jesus. Therefore, we should be very leery of anything that seems religious or churchy or even kind of Christian that isn't surrounded by, filled with, submitted to, exalting, and proclaiming what Christ Jesus has done for God's glory and on our behalf. It's not enough. It it could have all kinds of religious verbiage attached to it, but if it's not bringing exaltation to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have no use for it whatsoever. And this isn't always easy. See, I've shared with you before that I grew up in a church with a wild, wildly unhealthy emphasis on the, the, the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And that didn't seem wrong, 
since the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. We teach that. We don't teach that, Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is subordinate to Jesus. But what I didn't understand at the time was that John 14 through 16, three whole chapters, teach that the Holy Spirit's job that he gladly does is to point to Jesus. That was what he was doing. So we were trying to have this culture of you know, being Holy Spirit people, and Jesus was only rarely mentioned in our church. It doesn't work, folks. Jesus is the point. He's the point. He doesn't emphasize himself. See, and that's not the only thing. Of course, a church that's off course can emphasize the gifts of the Holy Spirit, end-time prophecy, Messianic Judaism, social justice, or a thousand other things. But any focus other than Christ is counterproductive, it's deceptive, and it's ultimately destructive. Christ Jesus alone is the chief cornerstone of God's building. And because of this, God promises that those who put their trust in the cornerstone will never be put to shame. That's a good promise, isn't it? To put your trust in him means to place all of your confidence in him, existing for the joy of worshiping him. It's not just to believe in him like some good luck charm. I'm wearing my talisman of Jesus, so I can't go to hell now. It's to live by him alone. The air you breathe, the food you consume, it's all Jesus. Jesus is what you live by. And that, brothers and sisters, is the heart, the essence of worship, to live that way. But there's a whole other group of people that are addressed in this passage from Peter. Those who do not believe, those who have rejected the cornerstone, who instead of anchoring to him, have stumbled over him. Instead of believing in him, have been offended by him. Their stumbling was destined from the beginning, Peter says, because they have not simply and confidently believed the word that saves them. When I saw this in context, a question arose in my heart that I'd never had before. And I'll ask you the same question. What is the opposite of worship? What is it? What is the opposite of worship? Anybody want to guess at that? See, I think the opposite of worship is really clear from this passage. You have to say, if worship is the light, is there a dark? If it's the up, is there a down? What is the opposite of worship? I am convinced that the opposite of worship is unbelief. The opposite of worship is unbelief. See, if worship constitutes our total existence as believers, as I proposed earlier, then to choose not to believe is to refuse to give worship to the one to whom it is due. In other words, refusal to worship is evidence for a lack of belief. There's nothing more offensive to God, nothing more offensive to God than unbelief. You can name any type of sin, any type of depravity, the most wicked things you can think of, and there is nothing, nothing, nothing that is more offensive to God than unbelief. The, the Pharisees were not murderers or child molesters or rapists, but Jesus said that they go around the world to make a convert and that they wind up making him twice the son of hell that they were himself. Why were they sons of hell? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe in, in, in the message of Jesus. They were unbelievers. To, un, to not believe is to accuse God of being a liar. And the Bible says he cannot lie. So if you redefine Scripture, if you edit Scripture, if you say, I believe this but not that, if you say, I don't believe this at all, then you are calling God a liar. To, unbe- to not believe is to claim that you are more qualified to save yourself than God is. And you will be 
sorely disappointed at the last day. Therefore, all sin is essentially the sin of unbelief. See, sin says to God, I don't need what you have. I can't find satisfaction in you. I can find satisfaction in tons of other things. See, it was because of the sin of unbelief. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it was because of the sin of unbelief that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world. I can prove it. John 16, 8, listen to what Jesus says. He says, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. So what's he con- what sin is the Holy Spirit convicting people of? The fact that they don't believe in Jesus. Convicting them of the sin of unbelief. But worship, you see, is the opposite. And Peter makes this point in, uh, by contrast very next, in the very next passage. He says, but you, worshipers, you believers are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has redeemed you and fashioned you along with everyone else who believes into a race, a priesthood, a nation. He's done that for one distinct purpose, that you would declare the excellencies of his grace in praise and worship. That is the sum total of our meaning of our existence. To be a holy nation, a a royal priesthood, a chosen race, to to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Do you remember when he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Do you remember the darkness at all? If you remember the darkness and you're living in the light, then how could you not praise him? How could you not open your mouth and express his excellency? He says once... You were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you've received mercy. See, as believers, we're a chosen race. It's God's grace rather than human choice that's the ultimate explanation for why some people come to God and others do not. And therefore, because of that, no one can boast of being included. But more than that, he uses further covenantal language by calling the body of Christ a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Peter is applying to the church what was said about the kingdom of Israel under the old covenant in Exodus 19. His point is that God is dealing with his people now through a new and a better covenant. If you don't know how good of news that is, none of us wants to be living under the old covenant. But there's a new and better covenant. And because of that, now you, not some Middle Eastern nation, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And what is that purpose? What is the purpose of all of these benefits that have been lavished on us? What's the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, worship is the point of our redemption. It's the point of our salvation. And who, who has more reason to worship and to rejoice. Who? Once we were not a people. Paul says that we were aliens and strangers to all of God's promises, but now we've been adopted. Guess what? Now we're God's people. Once we were languishing in our sin and degradation, but at the cross Jesus lavished mercy and grace on us, his very enemies. And now we have received the mercy that is required for us to live. Is there any reason 
to remain in unbelief. Let us repent. Let us repent and proclaim his excellencies in our music, in our prayers, in our preaching, in our work, in our parenting, in our studies, in our marriages, in our eating, our sleeping, our suffering, in our dying. Let praise be our food. Let worship be our breath. And to God alone be the glory. I had a guy would tell me one time, he said, man, why do you do so many songs? This was a couple of years ago. He said, why do you do so many songs about repentance and brokenness and things like that? He said, I, I repented when I gave my heart to Jesus, and, and I don't want to be broken. I want to be restored. And let me tell you something. That, that shocked me to hear that because we all need to repent all the time. See, repentance isn't groveling. Repentance isn't, isn't you know, telling God what a, what a lousy dog we are or a worm. Repentance is, is saying, wow, it's time to return to worship. It's time to turn my heart back to worship. Brokenness, man, I don't know about you, but if I'm not broken, I have this amazing capacity to harden right back up in my own pride. Am I the only one? And I can... If I'm not broken, then, then I, I, I begin to think I'm pretty darn smart, pretty good looking. Hey, don't laugh at that. Come on now. I, I thought I'd get an amen or two out of that, but, but the, uh, thank you. The, the, uh, um, you if, I don't, if I'm not broken, then I begin to think all kinds, of my things, uh, all kinds of things about myself that don't help me. I begin to think that other things are going to satisfy me besides Jesus. But when I raise my hands and I say, Lord, break me. Lord, I repent. Let me come back to a heart of worship that, that, that exalts you and doesn't bring you down. Then, man, I, it, it just realigns my status as a believer, my status as someone who has put their trust in Jesus and clings to nothing in this life. And that's what I need. That's what I want. And so um, I thought when I was putting this message together, I thought, well, I'll bring up the worship team. This is a, team, a, song on worship, a message on worship. And we will end in worship and everybody will raise their hands and, and sing and cry maybe a little bit and then we can go home and eat. But here's, here's what I thought. I thought with what I'm trying to share with you about the nature, the essence of worship, that would be an absolute lousy way to end. But you know what would be a good way to end? Is if all of us just begin to repent right now. Would you stand with me? See, this is not a thing. I'm not going to invite you and say, if you've been walking in unbelief, then raise your hand and we'll pray for you. Because you know what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind. If I were a betting man, I'd go to Vegas and put a million dollars on this bet. That 100% of us, not you, but us, are walking in some degree of unbelief. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. And so because that's true, there's two groups of people in this room right now. There are people that also recognize that and they despise it and they say, Lord, I want you to have my whole heart. And you don't. Repentance starts with honesty. Lord, you don't have my whole heart. It's a bunch of stuff that has my heart. But I want you to have it, Lord. So today I'm coming back to you. I'm returning to worship. And I'm going to carry that worship to my job, to school. I'm going to carry that worship in my hobbies, in my relationships, in my neighborhood, with my friends. I'm going to carry this heart of worship everywhere, Lord. When the music's playing, when the music's not playing. That's the first group of people. The other group of, of people are those of you who are there and you just don't care. You're satisfied with where you're at. You think you're saved. You, you think that God's happy with you. And so, you know, you, you did your bit one time. You said a prayer. You, 
you, you know, maybe you came and took communion this morning. You're okay. You checked off all your, all your uh, checkoff boxes and you'll just go on and, and uh, live your life and, and uh, hope for the best. So I don't know what to say to the second group, but to the first group, I want to say this. If your heart longs to be a 24-7, fully immersed, constantly returning worshiper, then I want to invite you to get both your hands up right now and we're going to pray and we're going to repent to the Lord. Now, I could pray for you and I will, but if I'm the only one praying, it defeats the whole purpose. I need to, well, I don't need, I don't need anything. I, you need to be able to right now express in your own words from your own heart what you want the Lord to do in you, what miracle you want him to do to dissolve and destroy the unbelief that's killing you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and to the best of our ability, God, what, what we have the capacity to do, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. And God, we look at our own lives and we say, God, the list of things that we are trusting in, God, our, our money, our status, our reputation, some wound that we have nurtured for so long, God, whatever it is, there's so many things. God, I couldn't list them all if I tried. God, we, we've looked at that thing to satisfy us or give us meaning. And Lord, we, we recognize that we've lost our meaning. Our meaning is to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So God, with not a single instrument playing and no skillful singing happening, Lord God, we look to you and we say, God, forgive us. And we say, God, restore to us the heart of worship, Lord God. Cure us and heal us and drive out unbelief from us, Lord, that we would put our full confidence in you to trust you to be everything to us, Lord God. Let us feast only on you and your word. Let us be like babies again, Lord God, who desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow by it. Lord, I pray that by a miracle of grace, we would find ourselves at work this week and at school this week and in our neighborhood and in our homes this week, worshiping whether there's music going or not, that it would become a romantic exchange of expressions of love between you and us, Lord God, as we tell you what you mean to us and your Holy Spirit enables us to do that. We need you, Lord Jesus. God, take this group of people and we're not afraid to say those words. We repent and break us. Break us, Lord God. Humble our pride. Help us. We long for you. Sustain us. Satisfy us. Be everything to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You are more than enough. God, enable us not to, God, use this repentance as a toggle switch, Lord God, till it needs to be reset, Lord God. I pray that you would find us as we worship, that part of that worship will be the simultaneous constancy of repentance, Lord God. God, help us to hate our sin and put it to death, Lord God, to mortify it, as Paul says, to bring glory to your name, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for this group of people that I love so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.